0: Welcome to the PhD in Parenting podcast, the podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith
1: and I'm Erin. We're two mothers with a total of seven kids ages one to 17 and two
0: PhDs in English. I'm an assistant professor of English and a program director. And I'm an acquisitions editor for an academic press. In the 10 years that we've known each other and seen our families grow, We've often found it difficult to relate to our families what it's like to be an academic and to relate to our colleagues what it's like to have kids. So during this pandemic, we decided to start this podcast to
1: counter our own isolation and hopefully connect with other parents in academia. Thanks so much for being here and lending us your ears for about the next hour. So you did one thing I wanted to check in with you on. I don't know if you've been following this great Dr. Biden debate via social media, but this morning I saw an interesting post that kind of happened over Twitter. It's been taken down now. But because I'm friends with a lot of academics online, of course, this was something that got a lot of response. But there was another writer that was counting the errors in Dr. Biden's dissertation And they said they found something like 200 supposed errors in the dissertation and I looked at some of them and they were pretty picky. I mean of course there were some errors that were like copy editing errors but some of the things that they counted as quote errors were like I think more questions of style than anything like using hyphen to say multicultural or two-thirds. I've actually worked in publications prior to this and you know people have their own little style I thought you would consider this interesting because A, is there a dissertation that doesn't have any errors? And then B, even to kind of look at the publishing side of things, just looking at books I've read for college courses, textbooks, things like that, I've seen errors in books that do have copy editors. So, I thought it'd be interesting just to pick your brain a little bit about copy editing, especially the dissertation. I mean, are you surprised that someone would have typos in their dissertation? Why is having some errors kind of something that we would think would be normal?
0: That's so horrifying to think that somebody would pull up your dissertation that's freely available online and search for errors. I don't know that 200 or 300 errors, that's about one error per page. I don't know that that's all that surprising to me I I didn't go back and read mine to, and so I don't know I can't relate that back to how many errors would be in mine so I don't I don't really have a comparison, but that doesn't strike me as completely odd, especially like you're sort of suggesting what the submission process is, right? The dissertation isn't a book. It's not supposed to be a book. It's supposed to be sort of maybe a draft for a book, but there's not the expectation that it's in its final form. It doesn't have a copy editor. It often doesn't even have another set of eyes running over it. It's often very hectic when you finally submit it. And I think the ultimate factor of what goes into actually completing your degree is the dissertation defense. So I would think of the dissertation as sort of a document that people use to prepare for the dissertation defense. And that's sort of where more of the testing and more of the conversation actually takes place. And then when it gets posted to ProQuest, that's sort of a matter of like recording the process. I don't want to underestimate the importance of the dissertation, but That strikes me as um, nitpicky. I wonder if the person that actually went in to do that ever um, submitted a dissertation or even like a longer seminar paper. And then also, like you said, some of that is just a matter of style, multicultural, if that's hyphenated or not, that I think even Chicago might allow multiple spellings in that case. So I'm wondering if all of those things that are found as errors actually even are actual errors. So all questions of style aside, what's interesting
1: is that Mark Perry, who did initially write these tweets, has since pulled them down. He does actually have a Ph.D., but what Dr. Kareen Wather posted, um, which is kind of funny, is that if Mark Perry wants to go after minor typos in Dr. Jill Biden's dissertation, he might want to acknowledge that he depended on a woman's free labor to proofread his own dissertation. So in fact, he thanks Marie Perry for proofreading the final copy of his own manuscript. And so that really brings up a lot of questions about proofreading, who has time, who can afford it, who has someone that can dedicate the hours and hours needed to closely proofread a document like that. Judith, there's just so much happening in the final stages of the dissertation. Not only are you making some of those formatting changes, I know for our college we had to format it properly to the graduate school guidelines, but then there was another set of stylistic changes we had to make for ProQuest, but then what were all the other things we're working on? I mean, it's a lot to handle in a short amount of time.
0: You know, when you're in that last throes of finishing the dissertation, you've been working on this document for three, four, five years, and you're getting ready to defend it with your eye on the defense. I don't know that anybody is proofreading that thing word for word to make sure That everything is in order before they submit it to the dissertation committee. I mean, when I was, you know, the last days before the dissertation defense, I was working on my presentation because I wanted to make sure that that's top notch. I, you know, I was working on a PowerPoint to include in that. I was even getting permissions for the images. I was reaching out to the, you know, to the people whose photographs I was using to make sure that I had permission to use them for when it got posted to ProQuest and all those kinds of things. And then for me, when I defended my dissertation, they didn't request any changes. So once I was done with that, I was done with that. I sent that to ProQuest. I didn't proofread that again. That makes me nervous. Maybe I should have. I don't know. But that just, I am just completely appalled by this. Like, you know, and I even get, yeah, we get book manuscripts that have mistakes. I think I mentioned this before. My dad just recently decided to start writing uh, novellas, novels, uh, fiction, and i proofread his first novella after he had worked on it for months and months and months and he is very thorough and has a very close eye for detail and i still found probably like 12 to 15 errors in a in a 120 page novella so Those are small flaws that don't undermine the value of your dissertation. If they had found plagiarism, okay, that's a conversation that I'd be willing to have. If there were arguments, flaws in the argument, that's a conversation I'm willing to have. I am not interested in arguing with somebody over whether multicultural has a hyphen or not.
1: So in addition to this recent tweet, I see a lot of male writers critiquing the actual content of the dissertation as well. I read an article, which I'm not even going to name the author because I probably guess they're just writing this to get attention, to be a little polemic, I suppose. But the title of the article is Jill Biden's Doctorate is Garbage because her dissertation is garbage. And not only is this author sort of critiquing her writing, but just that the topic itself is not an addition to the sum total of human knowledge, making disparaging comments about the type of work that she's been doing, which is teaching remedial English to folks in community colleges. And so that. That to me is also highly problematic. For those of us that do work with remedial writers, we find the work incredibly important and sort of to disparage this incredible and important body of work when we're helping many times first generation college students to become more literate and to enter the scholarly conversation is very important to us. So
0: I'm also really tired of these critiques of the project itself. Just for the record, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's really that sounds like really important work. I haven't looked at the dissertation. I don't know how she set it up. A conversation about typos is not worth having to me. Asking questions about the value of the research is potentially worth having. She has a dissertation committee, and they have clearly all found um, the the research valuable, so I don't know why people are coming out of the right and left field and challenging her on the value of the research or the spelling.
1: That is true. Well, that ended up being quite the catch-up there. (laughs) But at any rate, listeners, how do you feel about your dissertation? Are you still writing it? If you completed it and successfully defended your dissertation, do you feel like it's your best work ever? Love to hear from you on this. But as we move into this episode, last week we talked a little bit about emotional labor and the empath. We started with that idea about emotional labor, and I thought that was really interesting and a fruitful conversation. And then we started to broach this subject of being an empath. I wanted to ask you how you're feeling about continuing this conversation, and I wanted to ask you, where you stand on the research of this term or like its scholarly veracity. I wanted to see if you wanted to revisit that because you had written me a little bit back and forth since last week.
0: Yeah. So I think this is a good example for research as work in progress. I thought it was interesting. I came across the concept. I looked into it a little bit. It really spoke to me in a way that thought it would be fun to address here. And then the more I looked into it, the more and and you had mentioned this, too, when we first started talking about it, the more I realized that it was adjacent to some other work by the same person that was leaning a little bit more heavily to the uh, esoteric side of things, if you will. She also has a lot of work on intuition and things like that. There's some overlap with the concept of the empath. And then I also realized that she is uh, a New York Times bestselling author and she has a Ph.D. In, and I think she's a psychiatrist, but she doesn't necessarily sort of have an active scholarly profile, and so as I was looking into this a little bit more, there were some things that spoke to me less than sort of my original initial response to the concept. Nonetheless, both you and I felt that this was interesting in the way that it spoke to both of us and that both of us sort of responded to the idea of being an empath. And so I think it probably is still worth our while to think through this a little bit further with the caveat of contextualizing this a little bit more clearly today.
1: Even though it might not be quote unquote scholarly per se, this term is everywhere. I've seen it all over my social media posts. And I have a kind of a unique set of friends, if you will, there where not everyone is a scholar, but I have a lot of friends who are working professionals in the nursing field, in the medical field. And so I had seen that term everywhere in the last couple of years or so. And so I wondered why you think it's attractive. Like you said, we both felt something or like when we looked at the definition of the empath that it kind of spoke to us. Why do you think that is? What about this term is useful or helpful in our day to day lives as mothers and parents and or in the professional realm?
0: So I think that we live in a time where this idea of empathy is really widely accepted and realized as something that's important. And we're trying to teach this to our children and people like you and me and others who maybe teach in the humanities departments or who teach literature specifically and culture are really invested in this idea of like how important it is to identify and empathize with other people in order to create more kindness and more understanding and to work towards equality. And I think empathy is generally seen as a very important foundation to create a more just world. And so I think that's part of the reason that the idea of the empath is so widely spread. And so many people sort of tend to identify with it because it's this goal that we all strive for. When we look into it a little bit deeper, as we started doing last week, we see that being an empath is really sort of on a more neurological level and a neuroscientific level maybe, there's the idea that people who identify as empaths respond more intensely to particular stimuli such as other people's emotions, but also sounds, noise. I think that's something that probably a lot of people can identify with or can relate to in some ways.
1: I mean, I think what's kind of interesting, or what I was sort of like picking at on this, is that I would say most people, unless perhaps they're a sociopath or a psychopath, have some level of empathy, and we see this right. buzzword everywhere about cultivating empathy. And it is true. Um, over the last decade or so, neuroscientists have have actually identified ten section empathy circuit in our brains. So if it's damaged, though, can curtail our ability to understand what other people are feeling. We are social animals. We've naturally evolved to care for each other, just like the rest of the primates. We're really primed for empathy by the relationships that we build early on in life. I think where it kind of, there's a little bit of flux or like ambiguity is, are we, were we talking empathy or are we talking empath, right? And so I think that's the part where it could be kind of interesting to think about what the level of empathy is, right? And so some people, instead of saying empath, they might say highly empathetic people, HEPs, it might be interesting then to talk about some of these examples then of like how we see this every day. I know that you had mentioned emotional labor, but you had mentioned kind of like sometimes as mothers, we have these like sort of reactions to our kids that might be kind of related to this concept of empathy. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think in some ways, what you're saying makes sense to me maybe to think about it in terms of uh, operating on a scale when you're saying something like um, highly empathetic person versus an empath. So it's less a matter of yes and no, and more a matter of like, where do you fall on the scale between like, I don't want to put the sociopath on the one end of the scale and the empath on the other. But it was interesting when I was listening back to last week's episode, I realized that one of the main things that got me thinking about emotional labor last week and about being an empath, I actually didn't end up getting to talk about. The toddler tantrum to me is a very important example. And let me explain why I mean that. The way that I feel like we're expected to handle a toddler tantrum at this Point in time. How do we shut down something like that? Like your kids, like on the floor, flinging their legs and arms, and you just screaming because you didn't put the peanut butter and the honey on the right side of the bread. This literally happened to me recently where my son was like, asked me to put the peanut butter and the honey on the same slice of bread and then put the other slice of the bread on top. And I was like, he's not going to know the difference. So I put the peanut butter on the one bread, the honey on the other, and then folded it together. And it was complete mayhem. Like he, he opened it up. He saw that I didn't do it right. And he was just like, I'm not eating this. So like, (laughs) so like, how do we handle this? I think like the old fashioned and traditional way is just be like, you have food in front of you, you need to eat it. And I think the more recent Way to handle it is to sort of assume that there is like a larger emotional issue lying underneath. Okay. So, like, the question is, we're in a pandemic. This never used to be an issue before. So, then you're going through this like internal catalog of questions. Is it about controlling what goes in and out of his body? Is he anxious about something else that now all of a sudden he has to have certain things just so? And I'm going through this like internal catalog of potential emotions that he might be feeling so that I can respond to that rather than responding to the fact that he's losing his mind. And so I think what's challenging in that situation is both the sort of identifying with the screaming and the crying and the being upset. On the one hand, I can completely like get this because I'm also very particular. So when he is like super particular about something, I'm like, yes, I get it. I understand it. I'm sorry. I did it wrong. And then at the same time, the screaming and the crying, and the, I mean, like I'm, I'm over exaggerating it a little bit. Like, it, you know, it wasn't a complete meltdown, but I'm using it as an example for other similar um, situations the screaming and the crying and the stomping and whatnot are triggers for me that just like get an immediate rise out of me where I get very angry, like very quickly. But then I have to rein that in, right? Because I'm supposed to stay calm. I'm supposed to sort of project this calmness onto the situation while at the same time also figuring out what it is that's actually underneath whatever the tantrum is, whether it's like overwhelm at the store or whatever. And so I think that that was something that got me started to think about all of these things and how they're connected, how the emotional labor plays into this question of being an empath. Because my question then was, is this emotional labor that I'm performing in the context of the of the tantrum where I'm managing my own anger and my own frustration and my own sort of like immediate like physical response to the screaming and to the being upset and to the rejecting the food to both project calmness onto the situation and help him calm down both by projecting that calmness and by identifying what the underlying the major like underlying emotion actually is does that become more exhausting when I'm also at the same time struggling with sort of like the direct identification with his date of being upset. Does that make sense?
1: My kids are all a little bit older, but my right. last, my my youngest child is seven and she just had tantrums every day. I never really right. stopped to like really get into it. I just know that my, I would be okay up until a certain point And then I hit like a certain threshold. I'd have to go outside because I needed a breather. And it was just the, I was laughing about the, the sandwich thing because, you know, it's that kind of stuff in our home as well. I guess i did try to figure out what some of it was if it was like a textural issue or like again is she very very sensitive to things but with her it was the socks the yarn at the end has to be lined up just so on the toe they can't be too big they can't be too small but then this would always happen right at like seven thirty-five when we're trying to leave and just an absolute meltdown and then I would feel myself like the the rage just boiling and bubbling over like I'm like And I've said this to all of them, like, I wake up and I'm in a pretty good mood. I'm pretty happy. I get my coffee. I'm ready to go. But when you just have this meltdown every day, I like your approach of like trying to figure out and like sort of like, you know, what is the why behind the what? Okay, he or she is having a tantrum, but why is this, you know, related to something different? But So I don't know. Do I call that? Is that really being an empath or is that just me being like totally reactive? You know, I don't know if there's
0: right you're identifying with it. And I think it's also normal at some point as a parent to just sort of get to that point where it's like, I cannot take any more screaming. I try, like I said, to think through, Okay, like, what is it right now? Like, what is it about that moment of like getting out the door that makes the socks an issue? But it's hard because you have a lot of you have three other kids that you're trying to get out the door. You're trying to get to work. And then it feels like there is this like cultural expectation now where you're supposed to stay calm and you're supposed to figure out, you know, what is actually emotionally going on with the child. And it's just it's great and it's wonderful if you can do it. But I don't necessarily stay calm and I don't always want to figure out what's underneath it. Sometimes I just want them to put the socks on to stay sort of in the figurative language. So you had talked a little bit about this questionnaire we had discovered. What did you want
1: what, to, what were we going to do with that?
0: I thought it would be fun to just kind of go over the questions and see what our responses are. And I would love to hear from our listeners when they hear this, whether or not this concept of the empath resonated with them at all and how they're feeling about these questions. And so it has 20 questions. We can read them in bundles and then see how we respond to them. Does that sound good? I like it. Okay, I'll read you a handful of questions. And then you can see how you would respond to those. Have I been labeled as overly sensitive, shy or introverted? Do I frequently get overwhelmed or anxious? Do arguments or yelling make me ill? And do I often feel like I don't fit in? What do you think about those?
1: So number one is funny for me because I'm not really shy or introverted, but I'm definitely overly sensitive. That is something that I get a lot of feedback at home that I'm just too sensitive. I can't always take a joke, but things cut me to the quick that maybe other people could laugh off. I am definitely what I consider an anxious person. I know you know that about me, but I'm like very highly strung. I get really nervous. Like I told you today, we're on break, but I still woke up today thinking there must be something I need to work on. I'm on vacation. I actually do feel that arguments and yelling, they really freak me out. I'm very uncomfortable with conflict. That's the hardest part of being a leader, I think, for me. And then the fitting in, oh my gosh, come on, nerd 101. Um. <laughs> I like people. I was like a little weirdo. And so I just had a hard time fitting in. And so I kind of had to, you know, sort of creep back into my cocoon because I didn't want to get hurt anymore because people just didn't like my eccentricities, I guess, as a as a younger person. So I would say I'm pretty four out of four. How do you feel about these? Very
0: similar. <laughs> I have often, I have been told to buck up. I'm surrounded in various different places, both at work and at home by people who tend to sort of take the tough love approach, which doesn't work for me at all. It's sort of the kind of thing that actually makes me shut down more than it cheers me on. I think that the people that use it around me, it works really well for them. And then, but for me, it's just sort of a matter of like, I, I completely shut down and it doesn't do anything to get me moving. I do complain a lot about being overwhelmed and that's a sensory issue for me. Clutter overwhelms me, loud noises, multiple tasks, going to the grocery store or like going shopping, like too many choices overwhelm me. And that that's a very sort of, like, physical sense of, like, feeling claustrophobic and, like, all those things. So that speaks to me. I'm with you on the conflicts. I also do not do well in situations of conflict. The, and I do know that feeling of, like, feeling like I don't quite fit in. Moving around a lot over the last few years hasn't really helped. Um, being in a foreign country doesn't always help. And so, you know, I think there are some explanations for that that could come from sort of, like, another direction other than being an empath or not being an empath, but it's it's interesting to me that they come up in this questionnaire. So here's the next quadrant of questions, if you will, and I'll ask you these.
1: Am I drained by crowds and need alone time to revive myself? Am I overstimulated by noise, odors, or nonstop talkers? Uh-oh. Do I have chemical sensitivities or can't tolerate scratchy clothes? Do I prefer taking my own car places so I can leave early if I need to?
0: These are just so great, too. I mean, I already talked about the crowds um, and the needing alone time to revive myself. That's something that not everybody around me necessarily comprehends, that it's really like the alone time that makes me recharge. So that's interesting. And then I just talked about all the overstimulation with noise and odor and nonstop talkers. And that's something, too, that like the quarantine has really brought to the fore more than I realized Which is that kids like to talk a lot and they will just like my son will be in the office with me and he will just talk. He'll just talk to himself and he'll just talk and talk and talk. And I love it. And I have to sort of like get out of my frustration with it and just look at it and be like, this is so amazing that I get to do this right now. But it's hard. It's like I have to make an effort to tell myself how wonderful it is that I get to be surrounded by him and that he's just entertaining himself. And then the the sensitivities, like the skin one, I think that's an interesting question. There are certain types of clothes that just like the one thing that comes to mind is these like polyester sleepers, like the pajamas, the footsie pajamas. My son doesn't like them. My girls both really love them. And to me, it's like scratching nails on a chalkboard or something. Like I can barely touch them enough to put my kids in these clothes, but they like them. They keep them warm. They don't like to sleep with blankets. But like I would be so uncomfortable if I had to wear them and my girls both love them. That's a really interesting example that and I basically almost exclusively wear cotton because I don't really like anything else on my skin. So that's something that resonates with me, too. This is really interesting. How do you feel about that set of questions?
1: Oh, my gosh. So it's funny because while I do score as an extrovert, The one question that I always think is interesting it says extroverts like derive their energy level from being around other people or they recharge. But like, I really like coming home and being able, I do need my alone time. I am happy with my alone time. Um, And I think that's interesting about the workplace as well, that I did like having that office to retreat to. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of academics will probably appreciate about maybe when we are post-pandemic, right, that we can have that space. We already talked about the noise, the odors. Um, Nonstop talkers run rampant in my family, and I'll just leave it at that. So that's something I'm always working on, trying to not be as sensitive about. Okay, so yeah, I'm really picky about fabric as well. I hate wool. My family is from Scotland. And so my grandma would always bring back this like beautiful wool. And I just, I, I, I loathe wool. I'm so sorry. I'm a bad Scots woman, I suppose. But it's just, like, I literally just started scratching thinking about it. I don't know if any of my colleagues are listening to this, but work puts you in these weird positions. Sometimes if you are someone that's a little bit more sensitive, I I like to have my own space. Maybe when I'm driving to a meeting We used to have a lot of meetings all over the state and that included a lot of drive time, but I'd always just say, that's okay. I am going to drive by myself because what if I need to stop for the restroom or what if I just want to listen to music? I I don't know. I prefer to drive alone unless it's with a good friend. Work friends as close as you can get. I still feel like they're kind of more at that guarded acquaintance level for me. They don't, you know what I'm saying? So I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. We've had some good drives together. You and I, and Ashley we had on the show she she and I I think drove to Louisville one year together and that was great cuz I feel like you know we have a good depth in our relationship
0: I do know that sense of what if I want to leave and I can't. So, yeah, if I'm if I'm going to a conference, I can't really leave early anyway or whatever. But if um if I'm going to some sort of a meeting, I do like to have that flexibility too to just be able to. OK, if I'm uncomfortable, I don't have to ask the person next to me. But like you said, it depends on who you're going with. And I think for most of the trips that we've taken together, you were the one who was driving. So this speaks a little bit less to me than some of the other points we've talked about. I was breastfeeding, um, I think, for two of those. And that's
1: why I think I said I'd, I'm pretty sure I had the, the child on board. So I think that's why I was still nursing. And that's, I think, something I needed my car seat. But yeah, that's funny.
0: <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. So I'll lead us into the next set of questions. The first one in the next set of questions is, do I overeat to cope with stress? Am I afraid of becoming suffocated by intimate relationships? Do I startle easily? And do I re- react strongly to ca- caffeine or medications? Do
1: I overeat? That's that's a sore spot, but the answer is yes, absolutely. That's been a problem for a long time, actually. I am a pretty healthy eater, but I definitely feel like there's a tendency to eat emotionally. I think that plays into certain times of the year as an academic. I know that like when I'm in that grade grind, I tend to snack, snack, snack. I know it's not healthy, but I just, I, I yeah. do. The suffocated by intimate relationships is an interesting one. I think that the pandemic has made some of those issues really clear for some of us where it's just really hard to be around people all day long, you know, and not feel like you're just being overwhelmed. And you can love these people you're with, absolutely, but just feeling like I really... I really could just use a break somewhere different alone, you know, or maybe just with the spouse or maybe with one child, but like everyone all together since March, it's just, it's a bit much. Startling easy. Definitely. I mean, you know, I don't know how this plays into my work role, but that is definitely for sure. You can ask the husband about that. Like he, I'm always, I always scream when I run into him in the house, which is weird. And then (laughs) I love coffee. So that's kind of a hard one. I probably react strongly to it, which is why I love it. And then medication there's are certain things that I just will not take. I haven't really had any surgeries, but I just always say I don't react well to narcotics or anything like that because I really don't. Um, they really do not agree with me at all when I've had them. Like when I was having one of the kids, they gave me some narco or something. I just, yeah, they're bad. So I just say no thanks. I'll give me a Tylenol. We talked about this actually.
0: I don't know that I can, that I know much about medications and the caffeine. I've had suspicions about the caffeine recently because I've been drinking a lot of coffee and I've been stressed a lot, but I've been drinking a lot of coffee for the last like 10 to 12 years. I don't know. That's something that's hard for me to say. I'm kind of with you on the overeating. I also used to smoke. And so I don't know if how much of my eating is the remainder of just like trying to keep my hands busy and things like that.
1: I forgot about that. Sorry, uh, listeners, true confession time. Uh, but that's a good point. You know, I really I mean, it's been it's been like 18 years since I did, but I did do that a lot. So that could be, you know, there could be a connection there.
0: It's also something that I like go to when I have a moment to myself. For some reason, I feel like I need to make it like, I don't know, a treat. Uh, Yeah, it's yeah exactly. It's like, how can I make this a special moment? And for some reason, like food plays into that. And then uh, I do startle easily. My daughter walked into the kitchen the other day and I just like completely jumped and it was the middle of the day and I knew she was in the house and it was just, but I'm like in my, you know, I'm in like my mental zone. I'm thinking about something really deeply. And then to just kind of be pulled out of that by somebody walking into the room sometimes can really startle me. So that's something that resonates with me. All right. Making our way through the quiz. What do you have next for me? Okay. The next set of questions. Do I have a low pain threshold? Do I tend to socially isolate? Do I absorb other people's stress, emotions, or symptoms? And am I overwhelmed by multitasking and prefer doing one thing at a time?
1: So weirdly, the first part of the quiz, I all had very strong like, yes, yes, yes. I don't think I have a low pain threshold. In fact, I I know I don't, I've had some pretty rough accidents uh, and I, I made it. I don't know about socially isolating. Like, it's the weird thing because I do find myself and I don't know, again, if this is pandemic talking or just who I am, but it can be easier sometimes to stay wrapped up in my own little world than always, you know, people want to make plans. This again was pre-pandemic and I'm kind of like, I don't know. Like, so some of those memes when people say, you know, you sign up to do things and you're like, oh, that's going to be so great. Then six months later when the thing happens, I'm like, oh my God, why did I say I wanted to do that? That's a weird one for me. And I do that a lot with like concerts and films, even trips sometimes. Like I really have to like shake myself out. So maybe that is a little, maybe that one works. We talked about already this idea of absorbing the stress, emotions and things like that. We said that we both really felt that way. and then. Multitasking, I don't. I'm not particularly overwhelmed by that. I don't know if that's something that I was innately good at, or just that I've been forced to kind of do in the last 20 years with having kids and having a job and having a PhD. I I don't mind it as much as I think as other people do. So that one I'm not, but I know that's something that you've talked a little bit more about. So how do you feel?
0: And I was actually thinking about this ahead of time a little bit. That's actually something that I thought I would get better at over time and when I started the job that I have now that requires a lot of multitasking I noticed pretty quickly that that's something I'm not really used to and I'm not I don't do really well with and I just had this expectation that it would get easier over time And I can't really say that it has. I'm interested in thinking about this a little bit more, actually, just because, yes, I feel like I've seen you do it very successfully over the last few years that I've known you. And it's just something that really stresses me out. That's where the overwhelm part comes in, too. Multitasking is something that really overwhelms me and where I just kind of get to the point where I feel like, you know, and and this is maybe this is something that's also true to having small children that gets a little bit easier once they get bigger. But just the sense of like, I'm never able to finish a task, you know, and then I have like multiple tasks open and like these like thousands of windows on my computer documents are open and this and this and this. And then I have stuff going on in the kitchen and maybe I'm trying to cook something at the same time. Like that's the kind of thing that really puts me over the edge. And so that's definitely something that I respond to. I do personally. I think I have a low pain threshold. I'm pretty sensitive to any kind of pain. And then, yeah, like you said, the absorbing other people's stress, emotions and symptoms, I feel like that's sort of like at the core of what we're talking about today. So I think that that's something that that's sort of the premise that you and I both sort of identify with that. I can move us into the last set of questions if you want, if you're ready to move on. I am ready. Okay. Do I replenish myself in nature? Do I need a long time to recuperate after being with difficult people or energy vampires? Do I feel better in small cities or the country than large cities? And do I prefer one-to-one interactions or small groups rather than large gatherings?
1: Okay, so I do actually really like nature. We have our cottage up north, as you know, uh, up north being like a euphemism for just northern Michigan that we use here. I should probably explain that. So, I do. I like bird watching. I like gardening. I like all that stuff. And I like swimming. I like being out on a bike. I think it's nice and it is quiet. I think that's what I like. Okay. So, I don't know that I need a long time to recuperate after being with difficult people, but it sticks with me, if that makes sense. Like, so maybe I do. But, like, when I have a difficult interaction, I just keep talking about it and dwelling on it. And, like, oh my gosh, you know, so maybe there is something to be said for that. I feel like I'm just like really stuck in that moment with that difficult situation. And I can't, it's like on a loop and I can't get out of it. With the small cities and country, it's like a mix for me. Like I want the option of being able to go to the city once in a while. Weirdly, they're so big. They make me feel claustrophobic. I don't know if that makes sense to other people, but I feel like it's just so much. It like overwhelms a little bit. Like I love visiting New York. I liked going to London. I thought Berlin was amazing when we went there. But at the same time, I like being able to retreat to a little bit of a corner. You know, I liked when we were in Berlin and was it Koisberg? Am I saying that right? Where it kind of had like a little more of like, yeah, it had like a more different like vibe. I feel like large cities are really great to visit, but I don't know that I could live in one. Yeah, I'm not good with parties. I hate parties. I'm just going to put that out there. Like I feel totally weird. That goes back to like not feeling like good in my own skin. I feel like people think I'm really good at that stuff, but I'm not. I feel totally awkward. So the reason why I'm talking incessantly at a party is that's how I manage my nerves. It's not that I feel good about it or I'm being friendly. I'm just like nonstop chattering. That goes back to that other question, which I was laughing about. How do you manage someone that talks all the time? That's me. That's my nervousness. That's another thing that was cool about becoming more of an adult. I I don't go to those things if I don't want to anymore because I just they make me really weirded out and funky and stressed out so yeah how about you are you a are you do you spend time in nature where you live now
0: yes because there's not a whole lot of other things to do I guess I would say I <laughs> I was never like much of an outdoorsy person I do enjoy like going for walks and I do enjoy riding my bike but it's not like I'm not a bird watcher or uh, my it's funny because like my my mom is like super into flowers and so when she comes and visits she'll walk around with me and she'll be like what's that what's that what's that and I'm just like I don't know Like, I, you know, I really don't know. I really have not even noticed it, let alone like taking the time to figure out what this plant is called or why it lives here or like what, you know, what about the weather makes it thrive or anything like that. Which I obviously that's not the only way to enjoy nature, but that's just like one of the ways where, you know, one of the situations where I've noticed that like it really doesn't speak to me in a way that it does to other people. But I do enjoy like going outside for walks and bike rides and whatnot. I do tend to sort of get really drawn into mental um, arguments with people. I guess I like the I like the idea of the energy vampire. There are people out there that are difficult to be around and it, it takes me a long time to, to get over that. And it has taken some sort of more um, mindful and active responses to that for me recently where I've had to catch myself getting sucked into these um, mental spirals like you said and trying to try to work on ways to get myself out of them. I do currently live in a pretty small town. I grew up in a very small town that was surrounded by a rural area so I think it's a matter of like being used to that. I agree with you that large cities can make you feel really claustrophobic and it's just like not being able to see the sky because the buildings are so tall and just so many people and things like that. So That's definitely something for me. But again, you know, and this is sort of something that's transpiring for me as we're going through this catalog of questions. It's like I identify with a lot of the questions that they're asking, but I can also easily find other responses, other explanations for why I am that way or why I feel that way. So I think it would be interesting to hear from other people what their responses are to this catalog of questions. Maybe the, the way the questions are phrased is a little bit like a horoscope where like they're phrased in a way where everybody automatically says, well, yeah, that's me. Or are we like more specific about this? Some of these things might also be things that sort of predestine us for a life as a scholar, like the introspection and the enjoying our alone time and our our space with ourselves and our own thoughts. So it would be interesting to hear if other people had come across this concept and what their responses to these questions were. I might throw a couple of the really poignant ones onto Instagram for some polls to see how people respond to them. And I would really love to hear from our listeners how they feel about the concept of the empath and what they what their responses to this episode are.
1: I think I liked what you were saying, too, because this kind of goes back to my idea that, like, are all people, with the exception of a few, that, like, may not have proper neural function could we all say like, who hasn't felt like they don't fit in? You know, I think everyone has had moments where they feel like they're out of place. That goes back to the imposter syndrome. It's not just in high school. It could be at your first job. Do many of us feel like we want to socially isolate? Even if we are good at multitasking, you know, is it really necessarily something we want to do? Because I think with multitasking, even if we're quote unquote good at it, I I think it's really hard to do a good job I I think that these could speak to a lot of people, but I think you're also right in assuming that many of us that go into the academy have these more introspective personalities. And so I I would be curious to see how people feel about this. And like you said, um, some of this has been used interchangeably. I had kind of an interesting article that I'll put a link to, which was um, from something called the Greater Good Magazine. But the person that wrote it does have a PhD, but it's just talking about habits of highly empathic people, but they're kind of using this more in terms of empathy. And like you sort of mentioned, what is really great about having empathy is that it leads to social justice, right? If we're able to sort of emote and see ourselves in other people's shoes that maybe don't have it as good as we do, or we can think about poverty and racism and classism, then that can lead to some positive social change. So I think all in all, we want to see people who are showing empathy, whether we're labeling them an empath is sort of semantics, but I think it's a really interesting concept. And I think it does say something that so many of those questions really seem to like speak to both of us. So as we sort of close out today, I wondered if you had anything more to share with your reading. Have you made your way
0: through your text at all? Have you found time this week? Sounds like you've been busy. Absolutely not. This was not the week for me to pick up a book, to be quite honest. I mentioned recently that I was preparing for a conference. And this week was the week of the conference. And so I actually had a lot of those meetings that I was talking about last episode where I was meeting with potential authors. And that's always really, really fascinating and exciting. And so I did not spend my evenings um, picking up that book and reading about burnout or anything else. I feel like you need to
1: step away from that and have time to process. Like basically you just went through like six or 20 praises or prospectus, really. I mean, if you think about it, you're like listening to however many important book projects. I feel like I would need to step back and just like leave like three hours to process all that. I don't think I could dedicate any more mind space to like anything else. In a week like that, I feel like that after conferences in general. I don't know about you when we've gone to different conferences and you've heard all these like exciting new ideas. I don't really think I can dive into anything else at the end of the night because my brain is just like needs time to like recuperate.
0: Exactly. Plus, for anybody who's out there that might need to hear this, I'm also still not done with Christmas gift shopping. So that's another thing that's waiting for me at the end of the day. So I am hoping very much. I think you said this last time that the winter break is actually a time to get some reading done. And I'm hoping that, you know, once I'm all prepped for Christmas and I have a little bit of time off around the holidays, I'll be able to pick up the book and and get a little more reading done over the next couple of weeks. How about you? Have you been reading anything?
1: Well, I'm still working on Asher Love. I'm about two thirds done. It is introspective novel a It reminds me so much of, in a strange way, James Joyce's a portrait of the artist as a young man, like this sort of like using art as a means of escape and catharsis, although this is more having to do with painterly and visual art, whereas Joyce was about, you know, being a writer. But I also got called out by one of my colleagues uh, for not really owning my nerd card because she made a reference to The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy And I didn't get it. I'm working on that next. That's going to be my fun read. But I've never read it. And it's funny. She brought it up. And I'm like, wow, that's so weird, because that's like one of my earliest childhood memories is the cover of that book laying around on this like orange shag carpeting we had. So it must have been like the early 80s, I guess. And it's just this like it's a really funky, funny, kind of like psychedelic book cover. And so it's just one of my earliest memories. And I always remember like, what is that book? That looks really weird, but kind of interesting. So I'll check it out. I'll let you know. You know, sometimes it's just nice to take a break. I think if yeah. our listeners are taking a break with us, we'd love to hear from them as well. What do you think?
0: that sounds great we appreciate all the time that you're spending with us and if you want to get in touch with us and reach out to us some of you recently have it's been really great to hear from you we are on instagram as phd in parenting and then you can also send us emails if you have more to share i'd love to hear your response to this more experimental episode and you can email us at phd in parenting podcast at gmail.com thank you so much for listening this week and all other weeks. And we look forward to coming back to you again with a new episode next week. Until next time, thanks for listening.